0: The Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life.
1: Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by a panel of Irish Times business journalists to talk about property and working hours at the successful Ballydoyle horse racing stable in Tipperary. Owen Burke-Kennedy discussed the shortage of social housing, while Joe Brennan told me about a new Irish property venture that hopes to list on the stock market here. Later in the show, you'll hear from Mark Paul and Martin Wall on hearings at the Labour Court about working hours of grooms and exercise riders at Ballydoyle. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, we're going to start with property. I'm joined in studio by Owen Burke-Kennedy and Joe Brennan, both of the Irish Times. Owen, we're going to start with you because during the week you had a very interesting story about the the lack of supply, if you like, of new build social housing in the country last year. This is based on government figures, and it shows that just 161 new units were actually built last year, which seems, and that's right across the
2: country, it seems incredibly low. Yeah, uh, pretty shocking, all right. And this comes at a time when there were 90,000 people officially recorded as uh waiting for uh, social housing uh, accommodation on waiting lists. So um, you can juxtapose those two figures and you can see just how how acute the crisis currently is. Now, the figure, I should say, uh, doesn't include other uh, social housing solutions provided by the state's 34 local authorities and city councils, which, which also include rentals from the private sector, mm. acquisitions... Uh, refurbs and the social housing units that are... Okay, let's give them the
0: the benefit of the doubt on that score. How many social housing units were provided last year through
2: one means or another? Well, around 600 direct bills, which is basically the 161 that we mentioned bore by the local authorities and then the stuff provided by the uh, voluntary and cooperative sector. And the others come in the form of uh, social housing solutions, which brings it up to about 6,000. So but it's still way off the mark in terms it's, of what It's, it's miles need. off. It doesn't even come near it, And it shows and reflects just a complete yeah. collapse.
0: Now, there it. used to be a time when local authorities were heavily involved in building social housing. Mm. And we can see it all around uh, Dublin for those of us who live in the city. When did the government sort of stop providing funding for social housing? Or when did local authorities uh, effectively outsource it to the private sector?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, let me just give you a little bit of a, a background before I answer that question. But like in the 1950s, more than 50% of the state's entire housing stock was actually social housing. Just to show you from where we've come, in 1975 uh, was our peak build, the biggest year ever, when we built 8,700 uh, social housing units. And in that year, the private sector built 18,000. So we were about 50% that year. Now, since the uh, 80s and 90s and noughties, the figure's been around four to 6,000, depending on the year. In 2006, if you like, at the height of the boom, the state built 93,000 homes. Now, Well, the state didn't build them, sorry. 93,000 units were built in the state. Yeah, 93,000 uh, homes were built in the state. And the state actually built um, just over 5,000. Um, and this was uh, 4,000 direct bills and about 1,200 from funded uh, by co-ops and various different sectors. So now, since then, and how we get to that 161 figure, there's just been a dramatic fall off. And that's uh, because the capital budgets for local authorities have been just slashed. Uh, you yeah, know, the recession
0: has obviously come into play. There's well, been a yeah. crunch and so forth. But you would have expected, I mean, come on, we're out of the bailout since the end of 2013. You would have expected more than 161 units to be
2: built last year. Yeah, exactly. And and you can then speculate that there's been a kind of ideological shift on the part of the government. Instead of building uh, social housing for low-income groups, what they've done is they've uh, provided low-income groups with rental subsidies which has been a policy that's been uh, accelerated, if you like, since the crash. Now, that seems to be backfiring on a, on, a, on a major scale because it's inflating rents and then drawing more money from the exchequer. And it's essentially looking now like, more like a, a, um, a subsidy to private landlords. And that's now draw, uh, taking much more money than it, it ever had in the past. So, mm.
0: uh, There know. is a requirement, isn't there, for uh, new housing schemes that come on
2: stream that they have to have an element of social and affordable housing. The Part Five um, requirement, which uh, compels um, developers to set aside a certain portion ten percent of their estates uh, to uh, social and affordable housing, it's, it's, it's in theory it's a very good scheme. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's delivering very very little, um, you know, practically nothing. And um, just because the level of building in the private sector is still too low.
0: Well, Tom Parlin, I heard him say last week that eighteen to nineteen thousand units were expected to be built this year, new units. So that would suggest, let's say, take 10% of that. That would suggest mm-hmm. 1,800, 1,900 of these social and affordable houses. But I think there is another problem, isn't there? Because well, you're,
2: pres- the- you're, sorry, you're presuming that those 18, are, that those figures are heavily disputed. And then secondly, you're presuming that they're all going to be in the states where that Part 5 uh, regulation applies, which isn't going to be the case. Anyway.
0: Oh, uh, so in other words, some of them could be one-offs yeah, okay. or uh, whatever. OK, fair enough. But anyway, there should be a substantial uh, increase this year based on that. Uh, figure even if it's you know half that it would still be an increase on uh, on the number of social houses that were built last year by the state
2: yeah and we're ju- I mean, we're just actually not see we're, not, we're just not seeing it now i mean those figures and uh, by all accounts the, the ones coming this year aren't a massive step up we're just not seeing mm. the level of bills that's going to deal in any shape or form with the current crisis in the private or public sector so um you know it, in the past it's, and it's worth mentioning this um, the state acted as a sort of counterbalance in the property market. So when we had a crash in the private sector or a slowdown down the private sector in the 50s and the 70s, um, the state often uh, upped its game and built um, you know, much more um, social houses. And that acted as a sort of uh, moderator on price. It also soaked up a lot of the people that were made uh, redundant in the private sector. So it had a moderating influence. Now we've gone the exact opposite route. So we have the government withdrawing its funding for our social housing right at the time uh, that the private sector is exiting after the crash. So the government is actually acting in a pro-cyclical fashion, if you like, reinforcing the trend, you know, which has made mm-hmm. the, the crisis all the more acute. Uh, and it's, it's, it's unarguable at that point because it's just so self-evident. Well, we have a new housing minister, Noel Murphy, who's taken over since Leo
0: Varadkar became Taoiseach. And he has promised a uh, shake-up of strategy in the whole area to really get property moving again in this country. And, you know, he's already hinted that uh, he's not in favour of the help to buy scheme. Any sense uh, so far that th- there will be moves on the social housing side, meaningful moves by the government? Uh, should we expect something in the budget?
2: Well, I'm not too sure what we can expect in the budget. I mean, you know, there's, there's rumours about the help to buy scheme back and forth of whether it's going to be kept on. It seems that the government policy is all based and centred around the uh, you know private developer speculation model, which you know is going to supply a certain portion of houses and is picking up and is re- responding on, a, on a, in a certain level to to the to the price increments, but it's not going to do something and it's not going to do a lot for people on the bottom rungs and the low income groups because as we know the private sector are not building houses, you know for that category so the affordability gap the people at the bottom, the people forced into renting, that issue is just not being tackled in any meaningful yeah. way. You were also writing about um, the Department of Housing in Sandyford uh,
0: weren't you, um, this week? Yeah. Uh, they're not They're not amused by the fact that Dunleary Rat rathdown has put a cap effectively on the number of new residential units being planned for Sandyford.
2: Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a kind of discord between policymakers in the department uh, and various local councils. Uh, the department has had a... Has had an interest in in kind of high-rise, uh, high-density, I should say, uh, building, especially in some of the Dublin suburbs. And Sandyford was a prime example. Now the Dunnery County Council have, have put a cap of, of 1,300 residential units in two zones for its Sandyford area plan, um, which is quite low, uh, and will be taken up. Most of it will be exhausted. Actually, the limit uh, by two big bills up there. So. Um, Okay. Again, you know, it's it's an improvement, but it's making small dents on what is a major crisis.
0: Joe, you've been waiting patiently to come in on this conversation, I know. And you're focusing on the, uh, in today's Irish Times, you're focusing on the private sector very much, uh, an entity that Oak Tree is planning to bring to market. And it looks as if it's going to yield some very substantial incentives for the executives behind it. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I suppose... Um In many ways, um, if you look back about 10 years ago um, when the the crisis began, one of the anomalies of the Irish market was that it was very heavily dependent on developers who'd been highly reliant on bank funding. So it was easy enough to do that when banks were charging very low interest rates and you had, you know, uh, an instance of... So the likes of of
0: Anglo-Irish, Nationwide, AIB, they were lending... Exactly, and very
1: high loan-to-value ratios as well. Uh, That's all changed. Uh, Banks now, uh, if you look at uh, a report recently by Deloitte, are saying that a bank will only uh, give fifty percent of the of funding uh, of debt funding that's towards, max towards a site that has full planning permission. Mm. They're not interested in sites that don't have planning permission, so they're not interested in people building a land bank. Uh, secondly, if you have a work in progress, they'll only um, a maximum a, a, with like, with uh, uh, planning permission building whatever uh, maximum uh, funding to that. You're talking about seventy percent. So banks are really kind of really have really cut back in terms of. What they so where's really the typically. money coming from? Then? So the money has to come from equity, and in recent times also from mezzanine finance, and that is very high cost uh, type mm, funding. Just explain mezzanine finance. Mezzanine finance. Finance, finance it's 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 kind of somewhere between uh, equity and and senior bank funding. So basically, if if a if a development falls, obviously the equity guys go first and finance guys go second, and then the bank uh, is 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 third. So the bank wants to be well cushioned before you go near them. So now we're seeing, and if you compare Ireland to the UK, ten years ago, eighty percent of developers in the UK were um, uh, were PLCs. So when trouble happened they were able to go to investors and beef up their balance sheets, uh, make a cash call, beef up their balance sheets. You didn't have the same element of of collapses that you had in Ireland because of the Irish guys being so high, heavily indebted. And that resulted in a lot of them going to, to NAMA as a result of that. Now you're seeing a few developers come to, uh, house builders coming onto the market. You saw Cairn two years ago, Cairn Homes two mm-hmm. years ago, and more recently now, we're seeing a, a venture being set up by Oak Tree, which is one of the, the largest US private um, equity firms with an Irish um, home builder, uh, Bridgedale. Uh, looking yeah, tell us about
0: Bridgedale, because they've been quietly sort of, Uh, building their business here. I know they were a bidder, for example, on the RTE site out of Montrose, and yet most people won't have heard of them.
1: Yeah, I imagine that they were in with with Oak Tree as part of that. Uh, They wouldn't have had the capital themselves to do that. Uh, They have been... Uh, working with 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 Oak Tree for some time, They've, they have been the official developer for an Oak Tree development out in Greystones, uh, at the Greystones in, uh, Marina. So they have been in uh, working with them in the past. They have small developments in 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 Kildare, South Dublin, and also in 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 Wicklow, but they wouldn't be big by any ma- manner of means. So these guys have come together. They're led by a guy called Stephen Garvey. Um, and he's come together with uh, Oaktree to set up this uh, new entity. Now, in recent weeks, a, a company called Glenvey Properties has been registered with the company's registration office. And we understand that to be the vehicle that they will use to list uh, within the next six weeks. We expect uh, an intention to float uh, announcement to be made in the next four weeks, followed by a, um, a roadshow and a listing, hopefully, in, in, in October. They're looking to raise about €350 million Euros um, and by all accounts have about a hundred million of assets to roll into the the, the business uh, which kind of seed assets to put into the business that's largely the result of oak tree buying uh, distressed assets and, and uh, loans uh, in the last number of years have been one of the more um, uh, aggressive sort of from buyers. The side. exactly yeah
0: okay um, I mean what's what's going to be the game plan uh, from from there on let's presume that the IPO goes to plan what is their You know, what are they planning to do? How are they going to tackle the Irish market?
1: Um, I presume they're going to do something similar to what Cairn has done. Uh, so they start off with seed assets. They uh, have enough equity for that, take, can take in some bank uh, bank debt and, and, and continue to acquire assets uh, in, in future and maybe go back to, to, to mm. the market. And you interviewed
0: Michael Stanley Kern uh, recently. I mean, they've been on a huge buying spree, haven't they, over the last while, culminating in that RTE side, which yeah. they bought for 107 million. Yeah,
1: I mean, they started with a very small uh, portfolio of assets. They raised about 440 uh, million at the time of their IPO in two. 2015, they went back to market a few times since then and all told they've raised about 720 it's
0: a phenomenal uh, sum of money when you consider where we were just a few years ago in terms of property
1: absolutely yeah
0: and I suppose the key risk is execution isn't it with the likes of Cairn or you know something like this new entity that Oak Tree is planning to bring to market
1: yeah, absolutely. It's 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 about um, having the investors on board that are willing to commit long-term capital. This mm. is not short-term, so long-term capital. And that's why they're talking about mm. going down the equity. But road. it's all
0: very well having the capital, even having the land to some degree, but you still got to get it built and you got to get it sold at the right price. There's a lot of risk in that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I suppose at the moment you have house prices going in the right direction for them. You have, as of June, house prices going at about 12%. Mm.
0: Right, okay. Who else, uh, Joe, should we be looking at in terms of the private property market as kind of new players on the block? Barter Capital, I suppose, maybe there? Uh, Richard Barrett's entity?
1: Yeah, again, small enough. I mean, there are very, very few guys that actually have the capability of building along the lines of Cairn Homes, which is building, expected to close on 450 to 500 uh, sites this year, uh, properties this year, rising to 1,200 in, in two years' time. Very few have the financial flexibility or capability of actually delivering uh, at pace uh, along the lines of of care and homes. And that's why you're seeing the likes of an Oak Tree type vehicle coming to market as well.
0: Right. Owen, have we any sense of how many social housing units might be built this year? We know about the 161 last year. Has the department given you any indication as to what they
2: expect for 2017? It's really hard to get a handle on these figures because, Uh, You know, I know I had the the 161 from last year, and then that's buttressed by the ones from the voluntary and cooperative sector, and then that's buttressed by uh, rentals, by acquisitions, and by refurbs. And when you add all them together for last year, you get about Mm. 6,000. And then you're going to get a mixture this year, and it's really hard to get a handle on which is going forward. But it doesn't seem like we're getting a massive pickup. Now, the government have, um, you know, promised in their uh, rebuilding Ireland strategy to deliver... About forty-seven thousand social housing units uh, by twenty twenty-one. Um, that's that's the figure they're sticking with. That's the figure they're 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 promising. So that will have an impact if if they deliver it. But the and they're bit, not the new th- bills. Just
0: to be clear, they're but not new bills. D- it's d- a whole mix of and the this things is, you've been And this is where the thing
2: earlier. is: if their uh, social housing solutions, which a lot of them will be rentals from the private sector or part five, that isn't adding to the housing supply, and it's heaping up more problems. Mm in terms of more people, uh, you know, on on waiting lists and more people uh, looking for rents. And, uh, you know, that seems to be a kind of circular problem that's going round and round. We really just need to build more stock.
0: Okay, and of those 161, it's not very many. Uh, we've 26 counties, obviously, and 30-odd I mean, local I'm, authorities. So just maybe talk us through a couple of the headline uh, numbers per
2: county or per local authority area. Yeah, I mean, that, that, it's, it's quite eye-catching. I mean, just to give you, to show you just how inadequate some of the bill rates are, take Dublin City Council, right, which is... The city authority with the largest population, the biggest housing crisis, you wouldn't presume, built just 31 units over nine months last year. I I should have said that at the outset. It's a nine month period. It's a nine month period. We're talking about the final quarter figure hasn't been updated. Um, Of the three other Dublin authorities, uh, Dunleary, Laoghaire, down, fared slightly better than 42 units. Fingal, 29. And South uh, Dublin, uh, five, just five. Um, Even more. uh, kind of eye-catching is Kildare say one of the fastest growing commuter belt counties uh, built no social housing units last year and built 12 since 2010 so I mean it's, it's a just dr- it's a dramatic fall off um, you know so 21 uh, uh, local authorities didn't build any last year so you know the figures are just there's just been complete What mm. Well that South lining. Dublin County Council number is quite interesting just five
0: I mean South Dublin County Council is a big population area a suburb mm. like Tala, for example, which falls into its bailiwick, is bigger than the city yeah. of Limerick.
2: Yeah. Now, they'll come back and say, well, look, that, 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 that those direct bills, that's not the entirety of our social housing solutions. Mm. And they have all these other sort of metrics that they kind of throw at you to kind of get you off that thing. But I think homing in on the direct bills just shows you the slashing of capital budgets and how uh, everything on, on a public issue is, is being kind of, if you like, hived off to the yeah. private sector.
0: Uh, Joe, just uh, finally, and moving slightly away from the property sector, Permanent TSB this week fined by the European Central Bank. Uh, not good, obviously, to get a fine, but particularly bad in this context because they're the first lender in the eurozone to be for, uh, to be fined as part of this new pan uh, euro area legislation supervision which has been in for the past few years and it continues permanent TSB's kind of patchy record in this regard.
1: Yeah I think permanent TSB has had an unfortunate uh, relationship with the ECB from the very outset of the ECB's uh, banking supervision arm taking control of supervision of uh, Eurozone banks. You remember back in 2014 it was among uh, a number of uh, banks across the Eurozone that actually failed the Stress, stress tests. tests going into into that, which uh, forced uh, uh, the bank to raise uh, five hundred twenty five million of capital. Um, but yes, uh, this is uh, again, it's an unfortunate incident for for, for permanent ESB. They've had to uh, mm. they have to pay two point five million. It is a first of first eurozone bank to be uh, to be sanctioned by the uh, enforcement uh, unit of the of the supervisory uh, of, uh, supervisory mechanism uh, ecb supervisory mechanism it also you know the company itself has 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 made a lot of noise in, in in recent times about the cost of regulation and the rising cost of regulation um cost of regulation for last year was 61 million which is about 13 14% of their of their operating profit small lender It's small lender and it's a big proportion. Uh, again this year they're expecting to have to uh, stump up about £55 million, uh, towards regulation um, but you can understand you know on the other side uh, the, 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 the bill is, 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 is clocking up uh, in terms of the, the, the actions that regulators mm-hmm. have been taking against the bank if you look at this £2.5 million, if you look uh, late last year it was stumped with another bill of £4.5 million, uh, in relation to a track, track of, mortgages. of mortgages for the former subprime uh, company that they held as uh, so, sorry, springboard, yeah. uh, and also they're among two uh, Irish institutions that we know at the moment that are going through an enforcement uh, procedures in relation to its own mm. uh, remaining uh, tracker mortgage book.
0: Now, in a rather extraordinary interview, I think it's fair to say in the Irish Independent recently, Permanent TSB chief executive Jeremy Masding was bemoaning the fact that he, he hasn't got much credit for having saved the bank when he took it over f- uh, some years ago. Uh, he, you know, he says it was it could have gone out of business, and I guess that's that's correct. And he was making the point that, you know, international bankers can come in here promising a few uh, post-Brexit jobs and they get garlands thrown at them. And here he is on the ground, rolling his sleeves up, saving one of our domestic lenders. He's employing more people than any of these international banks probably do individually. uh, And yet he doesn't get any credit and he probably doesn't get the salary he'd like either.
1: Yeah, the problem is that permanent CSB is one of the few banks, one of the banks that uh, Irish taxpayers have been on the hook for. Uh, so you can understand why it uh, have a different kind of approach to the to banks like how much, that. How much are we still owed? We the put in total of uh, 2.7, um, got back about 400 out of that, so you're talking, what, 2.3 needs to be paid back? Mm. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the, the overall bill would have been 4 billion had uh, the government yeah. not been able to take over Irish life and sell it on to So
0: given all of the legacy money. things that you just uh, ran through, they're culminating in the CCB fine. Is he just a, an unlucky chief executive or... Does he have a case to answer? Yeah, look
1: at a few, a number of things. I mean, the big thing standing over Permanent TSB now is uh, the huge level of non-performing loans that it has. Uh, 28% of its portfolio, of its loan book, is still categorized as non-performing. Compared to European average between five and six percent, uh, compared to the, the, the Irish banks, as a multiple of the of the other Irish banks. The problem for Permanent ESB is that it had to sell its UK mortgage book uh, in the last few years, and that was a largely performing book. So the, the ratio went up as a result of that because mm-hmm. they were left with their worse Irish loans. And uh, at the moment, they have a fairly chunky uh, portfolio of loans that are still untreated. About uh, two point six. 7 billion, 7 billion mm. of uh, of loans are untreated where either the customer is not engaging or the, the bank can come up with no viable solution for them. And now they're going down the, the route of actually trying to get rid of those loan books and they're looking to, uh, to hire investment bankers uh, to help them sell off those loan books. Mm. The problem there is... Had they been allowed by the ECB, again you have the ECB coming mm. down, breathing down their necks, trying to get them to sort out the banks, particularly with high high levels of non-performing loans, to sort out this this issue once and for all. Um, and yeah. had the ECB given them them more time, a lot of uh, a lot of investors that got involved in the IPO a few years ago would have expected that there would be a, an element of surplus capital that could make its way back to them. If they are going up against a very tight time frame to actually sell these loans. The buyers see them coming. Yeah. And we'll I be suppose, look, my point is
0: area. that uh, 75% of this uh, the, this fine that was issued against them, what, two and a half million? 75% of that is effectively taxpayer money. That's our money um, that's gone down to Swanee paying this uh, fine. And it might only have been a categorized uh, technical issue by the bank, but people might you know be asking, well, hold on, who's responsible for this? Who's been held to account for this?
1: Yeah, I mean, the bank itself would say this is a this was their misinterpretation of new rules that were brought in by the European Commission back in 2015 with regard to the, the technical uh, calculations of, of liquidity uh, coverage ratios. Basically, how much money they have to hand mm. or liquid assets they can sell uh, very quickly. Banks have to have that level of, of capital if people want their money back in a stress period. You have to have a surplus amount of that. And how they were calculating that technically was... Was, was wrong at the time and they put their hand up they say mm. back Who's letters.
0: responsible Joe?
1: Well obviously the company I mean the company the, the, the guidelines were issued to the companies uh, we haven't heard of any other company across Europe another bank across Europe that actually has been fined along these levels yet so it has to the book has to land with the company itself all right, OK. But, I mean, if you go back to the original question you are asking about, you know, has he been dealt a, an unfair hand? Has he, ha, ha, has, you know, uh, have we been unfair in terms of, of, of treatment of the company? Look at a number of things. Uh, I think the wireless mother didn't think that they could get an EU restructuring plan over the line. They did do that. The wireless mother didn't think they'd be able to sell off their UK loans uh, given that Brexit was underway at the time. It, it was post, uh, the, the sale was occurring in a post-Brexit uh, environment. They did manage to do it last year and actually managed to do it, you know, without... Okay. the races as a result.
0: All right, so he has a bit of credit in the locker. OK, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Ombar Kennedy and Joe Brennan. OK, we're going to take a short break now. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about Bally Doyle and the working hours that the grooms and exercise riders have to endure. Back in a few moments.
1: Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are
3: Irish
0: Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life, June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Uh, Let me remind you, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, the second half of the show concerns Bally Doyle, that very successful horse training stable in County Tipperary, of which Aidan O'Brien is the lead trainer. And today, well, this week, they've been in a bit of hot water with the labour course. Uh, The WRC has... Uh, essentially uh, made a finding, if you like, that the the working hours that are being endured by the grooms and the exercise riders are longer than they should otherwise be are outside the uh, elements of the Working Time Directive. Uh, my colleagues Mark Paul and Martin Wall have been covering it. I'm going to start with you, uh, Mark, uh, because you were there the first day this week when they set up, uh, teed up, if you like, the relationship between Ballydoyle and the Coolmore. So tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, well, the, the Coolmore obviously is owned by um, John Magnier um, and, and it's a, it's a world-famous uh, and very lucrative horse breeding operation and Ballydoyle is essentially the racing arm of Coolmore, um, and 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 uh, which was uh, Ballindore was originally set up by Vincent O'Brien, and now Aidan
0: O'Brien obviously runs and Vincent it. Vincent O'Brien is hugely successful, in, of course, all right, but not related, Aidan O'Brien. Uh, not related to Vincent O'Brien, it should be said, but he, he did take over the stables there some years ago, and it has continued to be hugely successful. It has continued to be hugely su- successful. Um, trains an awful lot of
3: winners, and um, now a lot of those horses um, after they finish their racing careers then go in to Coolmore um, um, on you know to 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 to, to be uh, to, for breeding to, purposes for, for breeding purposes, and obviously the more successful they are on the racetrack, the higher the fees for uh, for covering mares and so on. Uh, uh, in, in the breeding operation. So really what they were doing on the first day, um, the, the, the first witness on on, on, uh, on Monday was Clem Murphy, who's a bloodstock t- blood consultant for, for Coolmore. Now, it should be pointed out that Coolmore and Ballydoyle are separate legal entities. They're not subsidiary companies or they're not part of a group, um, but they have the same ultimate owner, which is John Magnier. Um, so Clem Murphy is a bloodstock consultant for Coolmore, and he came in and he spoke about how um, uh, the training the horses and breeding winners, how this adds value to the horses and how it's an integral mm. part to go more operation um, and then uh, after that we had uh, a guy called Robbie Manton come in and gave uh, gave evidence and Robbie Manton is I suppose the head groomsman I suppose head of yard is his title and, and groomsman but he's in charge of, of a yard with 38 horses in, uh, in Ballydoyle
0: um, and so he was talking about the working conditions, and he, mm-hmm. he actually is and this is on foot, I suppose. The working uh, workplace relations uh, commission has been looking at the working conditions, the working hours uh, of grooms and exercise riders, and it hasn't really been impressed with what it's seen. No,
3: what what they did was in May they issued a series of compliance notices to the, the, the WRC to uh, to, to Ballydoyle, basically saying you're not adhering to um, and to, to proper rest periods, um, and, and the staff, um, exercise riders, and grooms are are are, are, are working. Uh, it's too close to each other and they're not getting enough break periods and so on and so forth. And that's the genesis really of the case. Um, so Robbie Manton is effectively the head groomsman and he was talking about uh, his hours of work. So he, um, he, he was saying he used to be a, a jockey himself but he got too heavy So uh, uh, when he was younger. So he went into the, into the grooms area but um, he spoke about his love for horses and about how they all have a great love for horses and a great bond with the horses and this is what drives their work ethic. And
0: was so he, was he asked about why they work such long hours? Yeah, well, he
3: was essentially saying, essentially saying that that, that uh, grooms like to maintain a one-on-one mm. relationship with his horses. These are some of the most expensive horses in the world. So, and flesh out uh, a
0: typical working day, let's say, for
3: a groom as as a labour quartier during the week. Typical working day, working day is th- they start either at five a.m. Or sort of six to six thirty a.m. Um, Robbie Martin says he goes in every day at six, but there would always be a couple of grooms, uh, uh, people already in at five o'clock feeding the horses. And um, they feed them, they take them out of their stables and muck out their stables, and then the staff all go off for breakfast down at about eight or nine o'clock. And then they take them out and they they they, they, they exercise them. They race them quite hard, um, and it's, it's it's quite flat out in in, in the morning time. Aidan O'Brien comes down, then they finish up their 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 mornings work at about eleven fifty. He said eleven fifty, eleven fifty five. That are out of there by noon. um, And then they have, on paper at least, they have from noon until 3 p.m. to do whatever they want. You know, some of them live on site and and, in cottages on site. Robbie Manton says he lives five miles down the road and he goes home and does whatever he has to do. Um, They come back in at three o'clock. The afternoon is much more relaxed, he said. Um, And, you know, they lead the horses out for a quick break wander around the place and, uh, <laughs> and Very technical term <laughs> Very technical term but they don't they, they don't race them hard it's not it's, 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 it's gentle exercise okay. and then they finish about five now if it's a race day this, it, it, that seems like a pretty uh, a, a pretty horrendous work day actually they go in at five or six or whatever it is at normal um, and let's say if it's a race meeting up in Dundalk um, they'll, uh, they'll get up to Dundalk by 5pm um, and, and they'll have their racing that evening they'll get back to um, Ballydoyle at maybe half past midnight with another half hour's work to do Maybe tidying, yeah. you know, putting the horse in the in, right. back in the stable, and then they're back into work at five AM the next day.
0: Right, that's a very long day. Martin Wall, what's what's the problem with, with all of this? Because you would imagine there would be own, so, own social hours uh, connected with a job like that.
4: Yeah, the key issue where this will come down to is is under the legislation that governs uh, working working time and time for people limits on working hours. There is an exemption, among another of ex- a number of exemptions, but the, a key exemption is for the agriculture. So the issue where this case will largely, probably, stand or fall is is the Ballydoyle
0: operation hmm. an agricultural endeavour? Okay, and what's what's the WRC got to say? Because obviously Ballydoyle think that they are. The, so what's the WRC's the WRC's, WRC's view? Very simply,
4: was Ballydoyle is about racing, and that where there are people, and Ballydoyle operation is quite a large um, a large uh, tract of land, that there are people who work there who are definitely, absolutely, no. And it's a multi million euro operation. Exactly. But there are people who are work no agricultural workers, so people look after the land. But the argument that WRC made was grooms and um, exercise riders, who are the people who are mm. at the centre of this particular issue, but they are not involved in the production of, of animals, they're not involved in the production of crops, and therefore they are not considered agricultural workers under the terms of Mm -hmm. the legislation by the way do
0: we know how much are being paid did that come out at all in the hearings we
4: have to bear in mind the issue of pay is not at issue with this at all the issue of pay was not discussed we're talking about conditions as in working hours but the issue of pay was not discussed so there's no question or any um, question mark over the issues of pay for staff in we're purely talking in relation to
0: working hours but it did emerge that the number of consecutive days that we're doing, let's say, in a four-week period was it was quite extraordinary.
4: Yeah, the hours, the average hours for the people involved, they have there's a roster, a, a standard working roster for the people involved, the grooms and the exercise riders involved, is a fortnightly roster, seven days, you work seven days on the basis, as Mark said, that the hours that were set out, and five and a half, uh, seven days, one week, five and a half days, the second week, or vice versa. However... When the the work the Workplace Relations Commission inspectors got uh, sight of the actual timesheets of the people who were working there, they discovered that for a, a, certainly a cohort of the people that they were looking at, they had worked 27 or 28 days in one four week period. So they had worked every mm. day. Uh, They've been turned up in work every day. Now, the argument in relation to that we, we'd heard mm-hmm. that there are staff who are very attached to their to their horses, they're assigned particular horses. There's a telepathy, uh, I think. Yeah, was Aiden was was the trainer himself said that, that it's it's really important. He said, by and large, after when horses arrive as yearlings, they're assigned after a while to a particular groom and to particular exercise riders. They may change if people are holidays yeah. or whatever but By and large, it's really important, in their view, to have... Um, the same people looking after the hor- the same horse all the time, and they said he said it was extraordinary that a, 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 bo- a telepathic bond develops, and he he maintained that right. after a while the personality of the rider becomes apparent in the temperament of the horse. It's that right. close a bond, so it's not basically the continuity is really important. Okay, and the issue of um, and Mark, of it also
0: it also emerged that the uh, the grooms, the exercise riders, said uh, there's accommodation for them with the horse as well, which is
3: that's right. Uh, like when 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 they're traveling, Pretty handy, I guess. When when they're traveling uh, in horse boxes, um, you know, up to Dundalk or maybe onto a plane over over to England or so on. There's um, There's bunk beds in these horse boxes for the grooms. Uh-huh. They can sleep in them when the horses are are, are are being flown over to England. The grooms must sit with the horses. They don't they don't sit in in, in normal passenger uh, 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 accommodation somewhere. They, stay, they 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 stay, they have to stay down with the horses, um and and a, a big sort of part of the argument for Bally Doyle was that, look, even if they're there for long periods of time, there's a lot of the time is downtime. They're not actually working. They can go off and, you know, if, if it's a race meeting in Dundalk, once their horse has run and it's back in its horse mm. box, they can wander off down to town or go out and put on a few bets in the races or whatever. Of course, they have to wait for all of the Bally Doyle horses together to, to, to go read back Read a down. book or have a lie down. I think that was the
0: quote
1: I
3: saw a during a, the week. Read a book or have a lie down. Um, and, uh, you know, Robbie Manton, who actually was one of the staff named in the compliance notices um, um, by the ORC. His entire argument was that, look, you know, if there are breaches of these errors, it's probably our fault and it's our choice to do it. And, yeah. and, and we're also committed
0: to And Aidan O'Brien Martin made the, uh, well, I think it's extraordinary, claim that um, he wanted, you know, these people want to, they volunteer to work. They want to work on their days off. And he simply wants to be given uh, the scope to allow to fulfil their wishes, if you if you if you like.
4: Yeah, the argument the argument was was that there are people who are really attached to, their partic- to the particular horse that they're actually working yeah. with, and that they want they want to uh, come in. And if people want to come in for a couple of hours on their day off, he should have the freedom to do that and be within the law. That's the argument. Right. Can I just can I just be clear? When we said earlier on about the, the agricultural issue, the, we gave the, the argument from the from WRC. Obviously, the counter argument from Bally Doyle is absolutely that it is an agricultural endeavour. Yeah, sure. And the argument being is that if you're looking after horses, you're caring for horses, you're tending for horses. Therefore, it is animal husbandry and therefore it is an agricultural okay. uh, pursuit.
0: Just quickly, how did this come about? Was it a random audit by the WRC, or were there complaints? No, there were no. There were no complaints. There was no reference
4: to any complaints. Uh, They, they were. They. It said that there had been a previous. The inspector maintained there had been some previous. Uh, contact between okay. the WRC and Ballydoll many years ago and that it's standard purpose that several years after that there would be a subsequent inspection. it was based on that the, uh, that started, the process started around about the end of 2015 at the beginning of 2016. All right.
0: The hearings concluded on Tuesday. When will we get a result? Uh, the chairman of
4: the division of the Labour Court said that he would deliver the judgment in the fullness of time. Right. Well, you're an experienced IOR man. Have you any sense of uh, of what that means? I wouldn't anticipate it in the next in the imminently in the next couple of weeks. I would say probably into October. Into October. All right, we'll await that
0: with interest. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Omburg Kennedy, Joe Brennan, Mark Paul and Martin Wall. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.